Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode is part two of the Hussite Wars, and this time we're going to talk about the guy who got me interested in this story, Jan Zizka. Zizka was a military leader of the Hussites, a brilliant and innovative commander, and one of the few generals in history who never lost a battle. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 5, Episode 7, The Hussite Wars Part 2, Jan Zizka, and this is the Almost Forgotten. When the Hussite Wars really kicked off, around the time of the gatherings on Tabor Hill, Zhilivsky's marches on the new town of Prague's town hall, and the first defenestration of Prague, Jan Zizka was living in the Bohemian capital. He was a minor noble and had been working in the service of the royal family. He had been a loyal adherent of Wenceslas, at least early in the king's reign. There was continuous conflict with the king and much of the high Bohemian nobility, which sometimes culminated in actual warfare and occasional imprisonment for the king. Zizka fought on the side of the king, as did many other nobles. Many of these were the lower nobility. Francis Lutzow writes that these conflicts, quote, were mainly caused by the dislike the nobles felt for the democratic tendency of their sovereign, unquote. Zizka was a minor lord, born in the middle of the 14th century, in a small town called Troknov, in southern Bohemia, not far from Austria. The nearest large city is Cheske Budiovice, and his family probably owned some land in Troknov, but his family was neither rich nor particularly important, as far as nobility is concerned. We don't know much about his youth, and if he was born as early as about 1360, we don't know much about his young adulthood or early middle age either. We do know that he fought alongside the king's forces in the uprisings of the Bohemian nobility, and he fought at the Battle of Tannenberg in 1610 alongside the other Slavs when they defeated the Teutonic Order. He lost an eye, maybe at some point during these battles, although who knows. It could have been when his parents bought him an official Red Rider Carbine Action 200-shot range model air crossbow for Christmas. Zizka may well have known Jan Hus. Both were in Prague and in the service of the royal family before Hus was executed. He wasn't necessarily the most radical Husite, but he was a staunch defender of the basic tenets at the very least, and was an ardent defender of what he saw as Hus's beliefs, as well as a staunch, lifelong opponent of Sigismund, who he saw as the main betrayer of Hus, other than the church itself. He joined the Hussite movement early, as evidenced by his presence at the uh, Burgermeister window incident. Sigismund, though, was now supposed to be the king of Bohemia by agreed-upon inheritance right. But as the man held responsible for the death of Hus, he was in a tough position. The people would not recognize him as their sovereign, and none of the nobility who subscribed to the Hussite traditions were ready to recognize him as their sovereign. The nobles who remained sub-una, remember those were the Catholics, were all for him, but they were a smaller group. Not that Sigismund felt much sympathy for the Hussites. They were heretics in his view, and they should be treated as such. And so, with the death of Wenceslas and the potential impending coronation of Sigismund, the people did the only thing they could do. They rioted. A prelude to the iconoclastic furies of 16th century Europe including the Bialdin storm in the Low Countries in 1566, which brought in the Duke of Alba as a response, the Bohemians began to destroy churches, statues, and artwork. It wasn't nearly as widespread as the one in the Netherlands would be, and it quickly quieted down, in part because while Sigismund pondered his next move, Queen Sophia became regent. Sophia, you may recall, was a supporter of Hus, and she had publicly objected to his execution. 
The leaders of the nobility sent a letter to Sigismund saying that if he guaranteed certain religious rights, he would be allowed to come to Bohemia. If he had come in quickly, promised to uphold the rights of communion, and made some vague statements about church reform and the need to end indulgences and simony, he might well have been crowned then and there, despite objections from the lower classes. But he was busy fighting the Turks, thanks to his other job of, you know, King of Hungary. So he wasn't in a rush to go there, and he gave some sort of ambiguous response. So pretty soon, thanks to a vacuum of power thing, people started meeting up to figure out what exactly they were going to do. In September, the different Hussite factions, if they could be called that yet, negotiated a settlement which would eventually be known as the Articles of Prague. And on the way to Prague, it seems, some of the Catholic nobles tried to attack this gathering and were driven back. How serious these skirmishes were is unclear. It's possible that only a few dozen knights showed up, realized there were too many people for them to take out, and went on their way. Who knows? What we do know is that rumors of the attacks reached Prague, and the response there was more rioting. Actually, full-on fighting ensued as Zizka and the other Hussites entered the city. They pushed back the royalist forces on the hill on which Prague Castle sat and forced them to retreat behind the castle walls. This was an early victory in Prague for the Hussites, but it was countered in the city of Kutnahora. This was a major city in central Bohemia that was near the country's big silver mines. It was populated with many miners who weren't local, mostly from the German parts of the empire, and there was a general animosity towards the Hussites there. There was some sort of pogrom in the city, and many Hussites were tortured and killed. Lutzow puts the number of dead at 1600. Soon after this, the splintering of the Hussites began. There was never really one group of Hussites. It's a collective term we use for the many different factions who followed Hus. The moderate Hussite nobility, who we've referred to as the Utraquists, saw all this violence and watched the city of Prague get smashed up in front of them and started working towards some sort of reconciliation. They were able to sign an armistice with the Queen Regent. These men didn't want to overthrow Sigismund, or quite frankly the Catholic Church. They wanted church reform, communion of the two kinds, and a king to keep them safe at night, all while still being part of the Roman Church. The armistice was agreed to in November for a period of five months, and it guaranteed their rights because the queen agreed with them. But of course, Sigismund was never part of the negotiation, so his agreement was questionable. A more radical group of Hussites, the Taborites, those who had gathered upon Tabor Hill a few months back, didn't expect Sigismund would agree to any of it, so they left. Zizka, who had been through the early events with them, decided to join this group, and he became their de facto leader. Meanwhile, with the splintering of the Hussites into factions, some agreeing on a tentative armistice with the Catholic authority, others not so much, Sigismund left the Hungarian frontier and traveled to Brno, which is the capital of Moravia. Queen Sophia came and met with him there. She was replaced as regent by a Bohemian nobleman, Lord Chenek of Wartenburg. Sigismund also met with representatives from Prague. He basically threatened them, told them to get in line. And Pope Martin V issued a papal bull on March 1st, 1420, calling for a crusade, quote, against the Hussites, Wycliffeites, and their friends, unquote. A literal crusade inside the Holy Roman Empire. This made Sigismund back away from any sort of deal, figuring if he did, it might stem the influx of troops that were going to help him out. Zizka and his buddies marched south and west in order to take the city of Pilsane, or Pilsen in English. This was important, as it was the third biggest Bohemian city, and it sat along the river that led to major German cities across the border. And Pilsner wouldn't be invented for another 400 years, so that wasn't their aim, if that's what you were thinking. Jiska thought he should capture Pilsen and give the Taborites a fortified base of operations. Although they quickly scattered any royalist forces there, the city itself wasn't as Hussite as he thought. The Taborites instead decided the safest thing for them was to return to Tabor Hill. It was a secure location, a hill on the bend of a river, and they were building a military base there. 
It actually wasn't the original hill that the meeting was held on. It was like one hill over, but they called this one Tabor too, so whatever, it's not important. Zhishka signed a treaty with an opposing commander trying to retake Pilsen that allowed him and whatever forces remained to leave the city safely. And he went out with a few hundred people, including women and children, toward Tabor. Now, even though the commander that was gathering forces for an assault on Pilsen gave him a safe passage, some of the reinforcements that Sigismund was sending for the siege had not. Zhishka saw that one of the towns on his way to Tabor was occupied by enemy forces, and he wanted to get his people safely away as quickly as he could. But he couldn't avoid battle, so he took up a favorable position on a hill and arranged their wagons, some of them ironclad, into a defensive ring. The Bohemian Catholics outnumbered his force of 400 or so with something like 2,000 cavalry. It's not clear if these 400 included the women and children, but in the Hussite Wars, the women often took up arms and defended just as well as the men. Although again, it's not clear that they did it in this particular battle. Zhishka had chosen a spot near the village of Sudamer that was surrounded by marshes and small bodies of water, making access to his makeshift fort difficult. And as the Catholic nobles were about to find out, nobody circles the wagons like Jan Zhishka. He arranged the wagon fort so that the women, children, and priests were in the middle, while his fighting men formed a ring around the edges, with their arquebuses, early firearms, and probably crossbows too, at the ready. According to Lutzow, quote, the royalists had previously declared that they would not be obliged to fight, as they would merely have to ride down the Hussites and crush them under the hooves of their horses, when, contrary to their expectation, they were obliged to dismount, they nonetheless bravely advanced, and their attack began about midday on March 25th, 1420. The cavalry threw themselves at the helpless little heretical peasants and were driven back. The knights of the Order of Malta couldn't breach the well-positioned wagon wall, and their commander was killed in the battle. When another group of cavalry had to dismount to get through the marshy area, Zhishka sent his men down and armed mostly with flails, they inflicted terrible damage on the attackers. With that, the attackers dispersed, and Zhishka's reputation began to grow. Flails, by the way, were basically weaponized farming equipment. A long stick with a chain at the end, and on the other end of the short chain was a heavy, short, maybe metal, maybe spiked stick. You swung the long stick and hit someone with the short one. Good for threshing grain, good for bashing helmeted heads. 400 armed but not generously supplied peasants, handily defeating 2,000 mounted knights. How did this happen? Well, it was Zhishka's war wagons that did it, and would continue to do it throughout the war. Well, that and his use of combined arms. The Erkebus was a slow-fire matchlock gun, not exactly ready for prime-time infantry formation yet. But set up as the first line of defense, sticking out of wagons, it was an ingenious use of a new weapon, along with the primitive cannons they had at the time. It was a sort of perfect strategic foil to the brashness of the chivalric knight that was still the mainstay at the time. According to Urbanek and Jopson, in their article on Jan Zizka in the Slavonic Review, quote, Discipline was an idea unknown to the medieval knight. He fought alone, or at best with a small band of comrades and so was a unit unconnected with and independent of other units, unquote. A bunch of peasants were perfectly happy to basically entrench themselves and wait for the brave cavalry to attack, where they could shoot at said mounted nobleman from behind a sort of safe, iron-covered wagon. Not to mention the fact that a tightly built wagon fortress made it a bit difficult for the defenders to run away, panicked retreat being the Achilles' heel of many a peasant revolt. Firearms had been used in the region for a few decades. Firearms were not new to the knights, but Zhishka may well have come up with this coordinated combined arms tactic himself. According to Lutzow, quote, It was, however, to Zhishka that the development of the Bohemian artillery at this period is entirely due. The war wagons, or carts, were armed with small field pieces, which could be transported with great rapidity and which were immediately in position when the enemies attacked the Hussite camps. 
closely connected with Zhishka's improvements in the use of artillery, was his system of forming his troops within the Haradba Vozava, or Lager Fort, which was defended in every direction by armed wagons, unquote. It seems like a no-brainer, because it was such a perfect defense for the peasants to use against the knights. After they battered their enemy with cannon and firearms, and when the opportunity was right, they'd rush down with the flails and start bashing heads. You can just picture how the late middle-aged Central European knight was so willing to charge full speed at this wagon, which, sure they were kind of like walls, but come on, they aren't castle walls, we could totally smash through those and get to the juicy peasants inside. Usually facing superior numbers and superior classes of adversaries, Zhishka was able to utilize these mostly defensive tactics throughout his campaigns. Zhishka was a minor nobleman, and he had fought and commanded in battles with knights in Bohemia, and then at Grunwald, he knew how knights were going to fight, and he countered that with his strategy. From his improbable victory at Sudamer, Zhishka marched to Tabor, which already had some sort of fortifications built by this point. From there, he took command of the whole of the Taborite faction, essentially as their commander-in-chief. He immediately started the work of training them to fight, with the tactics they used at Sudamer. In early April, Zhishka defeated a small force that had marched within a few miles of Tabor, and then took a nearby castle. But trouble was brewing. About that time, Sigismund, who had made his way to Silesia, another constituent part of the crown of Bohemia, to the north of Bohemia itself, left the city of Breslau. It's now located in Poland, and it's called something like Wrocław. W-R-O-C-L with a line through an A-W. Sigismund was at the head of an army, and he was leading a crusade into Bohemia. Urbanic and Jobson wrote that the crusade, quote, in 1420 rushed down from every side upon Bohemia to exterminate all heretics, as the crusaders did not, moreover, draw any clear distinction between Czech heretics and Catholics, the entire nation was threatened with annihilation, unquote. Now, nobody declared they were going to actually exterminate all Bohemians or whatever, just the Hussites, you know. But that being said, once the Crusaders start ravaging your village, telling them that actually you were Catholic didn't seem to have much of an effect. This behavior, however, did have an effect on convincing most of the Bohemians, Hussite or not, to work together to expel the invaders. The Crusaders crossed into Bohemia and came to the Czech town of Hardek Kralov, which they took rather easily. At the time, the elector Frederick of Brandenburg, one of the more powerful German magnates, did not join the crusade. Instead, he went and put down some Slavic uprisings in Pomerania and Mecklenburg, the northeastern empire, which eliminated potential Hussite allies and also convinced King Jogaila of Poland not to bring his country into the conflict against the Germans right now. Sigismund followed these victories by heading to Kutnahora, that mining town where the Hussites were massacred, where he was welcomed as a hero. But not all was aligned to Sigismund. His new regent, Chenik, was a royalist at heart, but also a Hussite. He had been in Breslau with the king, but left after seeing what was about to transpire, and he came over to the Hussite armies. He wasn't a Taborite, but he was a powerful figure leading resistance that helped sway the Utraquists, those moderates, to keep on fighting. There was, alongside the religious concerns, genuine fear that the Slavic Czech people would be purposefully done away with by the Germans. With this, Prague again went over to the side of rebellion, and the more radical elements began pushing out any Germans there, and smashing up Catholic churches, which of course made the Utraquists extremely uncomfortable because they really just wanted a king that would let them practice a few Hussite rites without being called heretics. So Chenik once again left, changing sides again, and was given amnesty and some concessions by Sigismund. Then Chenik turned over castles in Prague to the royalist commanders. The citizens of Prague decided, okay, maybe we could have a truce, and things calmed down again. They sent another delegation to Sigismund, who told them to go suck a lemon. This might not have been the best move, because they didn't respond with the expected extra prostration and deference. They decided instead 
to fortify the parts of the city not in royalist hands and bring in Taborite leaders. Zizka was called in to help, and he marched with 9,000 troops to Prague. Sigismund approached Prague, but decided rather than besiege it, he would ravage the countryside. His army swelled as crusaders began pouring into Bohemia, eager to slaughter some heretics who, let me check my notes here, wanted to remain in the Catholic fold, but wanted to drink wine during a ceremony and have the priests take vows of poverty. I mean, could you be any more heretical? Tabor remained defended and was soon attacked by forces under the Austrian Archduke Albert, Sigismund's son-in-law. Also attacking was one of those Utraquist nobles who was initially a rebel, but the anarchy of the Taborites made him defect, Ulrich of Rosenberg, perhaps the most powerful of all Czech lords. But Tabor was well defended, and the siege failed. In addition, as the emperor's troops were near Prague, Utraquists retook the city and castle of Hrada Karlov. This was a key city because it was where Sigismund's supply lines back to Silesia ran. Sigismund sent 10,000 men to retake it, but this was a pittance for an army that had swelled to something like 80,000, including, according to Lutzow, Bohemians and Moravians allied with Sigismund, Hungarians and Croatians, Dalmatians and Bulgarians, Wallachians, Slavonians, Servians, Ruthenians, Styrians, Bavarians, Saxons, Austrians, Franconians, men from France, England, Brabant, Spaniards, Poles. The list goes on. Sigismund, now with his massive army, set about trying to take Prague. Zizka set about to defend it. The Hussites held the new and old towns of the city, but Prague Castle and another stronghold were still in royalist possession. As the crusaders gathered around the town, Zizka decided that, without these fortifications, he had to hold Vitkov Hill, which sat along the supply lines. He fortified it and put at least some of his artillery there, perceiving that this hill was a fulcrum and that Sigismund would go after it with full force. There were some minor skirmishes, but even though the Crusader army had invested the city, they waited. It's not clear that they were trying to starve the Hussites out yet. Zizka's possession of Vitkov Hill allowed open communications with the countryside. Finally, Sigismund decided to launch a three-pronged attack on July 14th. One group would come from the Prague castle and storm the old city, another would attack the new town, and the third would be on Vitkov Hill. While any defeats could be potentially devastating to the Hussites, if they lost Vitkov Hill, they could be starved out. Sigismund sent seven or 8,000 mostly mounted soldiers from the Margravate of Meissen, one of Bohemian's northwestern neighbors, to take Vitkov Hill. They were going against wooden and earthwork fortresses manned by Taborite men and women. It is recorded that only 26 of them stood atop the hill. Modern estimates think maybe it's more like 60. So they were outnumbered more than 100 to 1, but they were at the top of the hill behind barricades and artillery. The crusaders slogged their way up the hill, taking heavy fire, and they may have finally taken one of the little forts that were built on top before Zizka appeared at their flank. He had snuck up with a small force of another 50 or so and slammed into their side, swinging their flails and causing a panicked retreat. Many of the Germans drowned in the Voltava River at the bottom of the hill. Maybe two or three hundred in total were killed. The fortified city, with all of its well-positioned artillery, held off the other two attacks. Surprisingly, that was it. The battle hadn't been particularly large. Most of the crusaders were alive to attack again. But the Praguers saw an opportunity and began negotiations. They laid out what were called the Articles of Prague and gave a list of four things they needed to make Sigismund their king. They were, in simple terms, one, the freedom to preach, two, the communion of two kinds, three, priests should live in poverty, and four, even important people should be punished for committing crimes. Negotiations took place, but the churchmen basically said, hey, this matter has been resolved at previous councils, guys, so they didn't get anywhere. It appears that the Hussites did expect to get some concessions, which seems a bit naive, all things considered. But their negotiations were incredibly successful at taking all the piss and vinegar out of the Crusader army. 
Many had promised only a few months of service and were ready to go home. The army began to split apart, and after the shocking victory on Vitkov Hill, some fence-sitting Utraquist nobles decided to throw in their lot with the Hussite forces. Sigismund couldn't care less about the crusade part of the fighting. He wanted the crown. So not only was he more interested in negotiating a solution, he had misgivings about simply demolishing Prague through his own artillery fire. He couldn't really kill everyone and expect to be given the crown, even with support from the Catholic nobles. And some of those nobles were getting exasperated that while Sigismund was of the right mind in not slaughtering as many Bohemians as possible, he wasn't doing the work he needed to do to just convince Rome to accept some compromise and be done with it. Sigismund saw the discontent, and rather than, you know, rallying everyone, he decided it was time for them to leave Prague. His army shrunk as crusaders left, but it was still much bigger and more, well, soldiery than the Hussite forces. But the crusade essentially petered out, while Sigismund and some of his troops remained in Bohemia. Oh, and the Catholic nobles crowned him right outside of Prague, but nobody besides his buddies recognized it. They didn't recognize it so dang much that Prague sent an envoy to King Yogailo and asked him to take the crown of Bohemia. Yogailo didn't accept it, though. He was not at all averse to sticking it to the Germans, but he was a new Catholic. And while he wasn't thought to be particularly observant, he wasn't willing to get in a war with the Pope over Bohemia. Formally rejected by Yogailo, those Hussites who wanted a new king next went to Vytautis, the Grand Duke of Lithuania. Vytautis was Yogailo's first cousin and served as a sort of regent, albeit with the nice title, while Yogailo was king of Poland. He accepted their offer, apparently less worried what the Pope might think. But while this was taking place, they were still fighting in Bohemia. Zizka, having saved Prague, marched many of his forces south. He feared for the safety of Tabor, and also saw an opportunity to take the war to his enemies. He entered what were ostensibly the lands of Ulrich of Rosenberg and took several cities, marching through southern Bohemia at will, defeating Catholic allied nobles in a battle in October. Zizka concluded a peace with Ulrich, and then took the castle of Rzitschini in early December, which had been held by Sigismund's forces. Around that time, the Taborite and Utraquist union necessary to counter the crusade began to splinter, and despite attempts at negotiations, Bohemia remained divided. There were the Taborites, as well as the others, who wanted Sigismund out completely. And then there were some nobles who were Catholic and sided with Sigismund, but the majority of the nobility were Utraquist Hussites. And while in open rebellion, they were just hoping to wring concessions out of Sigismund before eventually crowning him. Zizka continued to fight throughout the winter of 1421. He took the fortresses that the commander of Catholic forces in Pilsen, a man who had fought against him in Sudamer, was defending. That commander eventually changed sides and fought for not the Utraquists, but the Taborites, demonstrating the crazy nature of this war. Zizka was besieging a town near Pilsen when Sigismund took the bulk of his force to break up the siege. Zizka and the Taborites retreated. But Zizka wasn't planning on avoiding conflict. He just wanted to gather more men and pick the battlefield himself, of course. Sigismund then besieged a city that was in the region, and Zizka, now reinforced, came to offer battle. But this time, the royalist forces retreated. The Taborites made their way back to Pilsen, and the city rather than fight, negotiated a peace, which allowed the Hussites within that large city to practice their religion in peace. The Taborites then marched north and sacked the city of Chemutov, on the northwest border, and they slaughtered many of the citizens. Up to this point, much of the killing outside of the battles had been done by the Catholics. In this case, Zizka didn't hold his soldiers back, either because he couldn't or he didn't want to. Soon after this, the Archbishop of Prague accepted the Four Articles of Prague, which further strengthened the Hussite cause, although he wasn't exactly doing this with papal approval. Silesian troops then invaded Bohemia, but other than the indiscriminate slaughter of any Czechs that they were able to catch, they didn't do much, and they were soon chased back to Germany. Throughout the year, Zizka was able to bring cities over to his side, 
He also got that mining town of Kutnahora to surrender, which brought more nobles back into the rebel fold, including Chenik of Wartenburg, who once again changed sides. By mid-1421, most of Bohemia had accepted the Articles of Prague. Many of the Bohemian leaders assembled and came to some sort of compromise that included refusing to accept Sigismund as their king. This assembly included Jan Zizka, but it also included occasional Sigismund allies and Zizka enemies, like Ulrich of Rosenberg and Chenik. It's not clear if they all signed it or agreed. But what was clear that summer was a second crusade was gathering to again enter Bohemia and kill the Hussites. Perhaps in response to this, at least some of the Hussite leadership declared Duke Vitautus of Lithuania as their new king and sent an embassy to him. As small skirmishes and some larger battles continued, Zizka was taking yet another castle, this time Rabi Castle, the biggest in all of Bohemia. Zizka was able to take the castle, but he suffered an injury that caused the loss of the use of his one good eye. So, Zizka was now totally blind. Keep that in mind for the rest of this podcast. Zizka is blind now. In the fall, Crusade Number 2 entered Bohemia from the western borders with a large army. It was, as so often happened with the Holy Roman Empire, a large, disorganized army with no singular leader. But it was a large army nonetheless. They marched through Bohemia, burning towns, killing as many Hussites as they could. Men, women, and children, of course. You know how these things go with heretics. The Crusaders attacked Jatets, a town famous for its noble hops. No wonder the Germans wanted it. At least six attacks on the city resulted in no luck for the Catholic forces. They were repulsed every time. And soon, a large Hussite force marched to relieve Jatets, also possibly because of the hops. The disorganized German army was already in disarray, as King Sigismund had not yet marched his force in to join the invasion, and they were unable to capture the town. When the Hussite army showed up, the invaders fled, burning their tents, leaving arms behind for the Hussites to capture and reuse. Just about as they were hightailing it back across the border, King Sigismund was finally able to cross with his massive army from Hungary into Moravia but they were unable to create the massive encirclement of Bohemia they wanted to because the Germans had retired from the fight. Sigismund, though, still had 50, if not 80,000 troops from Hungary. He was joined by Albert with 12,000 men from Austria. So, nothing to sneeze at here. This immediately caused a lot of the Moravian nobles and some Bohemian ones to pledge loyalty to their rightful king. Sigismund began to march into Bohemia, and Zizka marched out to stop him. The armies met at Kutnahora on December 21st, 1421, and Zizka was again significantly outnumbered. He may not have had much more than the total that Archduke Albert had brought in as an auxiliary. What he did upon encountering the enemy was to immediately find some high ground and form a wagon fortress. Lutzow says he may have actually wanted to do this outside of Kutnahora, which, although in Hussite hands, may have had some Sigismund loyalists inside. Whether or not it was for this reason, he was better off outside the city. Some of the miners who had been forced out snuck back in, with Sigismund's troops in tow, and they retook the city. With that city taken, Zizka's army was suddenly totally surrounded. You might say he didn't see that coming, but that would be in poor taste. From Lutzow, quote, Zizka's position now became an almost desperate one. He was surrounded by the enemy in every direction, and the loss of Kutnahora rendered it impossible to provision his troops. He therefore determined to abandon his position and take up another nearer to the country, whence he could hope to obtain food and reinforcements. Zizka advanced with his wagons, either moving the fortress as a whole or just using the battle wagons as medieval tanks before breaking a hole in the enemy line. He took up a position on another hill, closer to his supply lines, and made another wagon fort, ready for another attack. Sigismund, seeing the Taborites were in real trouble, waited for Zizka's surrender, which of course wasn't coming. Zizka and his army were able to withdraw to another nearby city the next day to get food and warm clothes. It was freezing. 
He then went to gather more forces, and Sigismund again entered Kutnohora in triumph. In early January, Zhishka was able to take the town of Nebavid nearby, and surprised that the Hussites had decided to return to their general vicinity, the Hungarian forces kind of got spooked. They decided maybe Kutnohora wasn't that safe for them, so they quit the city. But it was more than that, though, because Sigismund headed eastward, and it seemed kind of like he was just retreating out of Bohemia again. Now, maybe once he saw it wasn't as easy to take Bohemia as Moravia was, and without his German allies helping the encirclement, he realized it was going to be a slog for which he just wasn't prepared. It was also bitterly cold. All that being said, I mean, come on, Siggy, you outnumbered them like five to one. As the cold set in and the intention of retreat became obvious, Lutzow says, quote, Sigismund's departure was a flight rather than a retreat, unquote. Zizka followed the retreating army, which, I mean, if they had just decided to turn around and really fight, but they didn't. On January 8th, there was an encounter with a large rear guard and the Hungarian cavalry fled, as did everyone else. Sigismund was going to stop at the city of Nemeki Broad, about 50 kilometers south of Kutnohora, but the king just kept on going, and he made his way back into Moravia. Zizka followed in hot pursuit, and went to take Nemeki Broad. The city offered little resistance, and the remaining Hungarian soldiers fled, turning the bridge to cross the Sazava River into a bottleneck. The cavalry tried to rush across the river, and nearly 500 of them drowned. Zizka captured a significant number of weapons and supplies from Sigismund, and the second crusade against the Hussites was over, a complete and utter failure. So, in January of 1422, with Sigismund out of the country again, Bohemia had the opportunity to turn on itself. As the various Hussite sects again deliberated over what should be their defining principles, it seemed that Zizka's leadership helped outright civil war from returning, for the moment, but there were still moments of disquiet. Religious fanatics were becoming more and more prevalent throughout the region. One group, known as the Adamites, thought the revolutionary Taborites were too stuffy and went around preaching all kinds of fun stuff like religious nudity, free love, and like never actually working, which in a medieval society, yeah. The 200 or so of these who had split off from the Taborites were eventually attacked and ruthlessly killed by Zizka, reminding us that, in the early days of church reform, killing people for having incorrect religious beliefs was usually practiced by all sides. In Prague, Jan Zielewski, that priest who led the uprising which culminated in the defenestration, had become more and more radical himself. He began doing things like preaching against following secular laws, and only paying attention to religious ones. This was a bit much even for the Taborites, and certainly the more moderate Utraquists. Zielewski started another riot of sorts, pushing some moderate priests out of their churches. He and his followers worked to keep the people of Prague from allying with the Utraquist nobles. By late 1421, Zielewski had essentially seized control of Prague, forcing out Utraquist leaders and putting his own men in place. At some point, Zielewski lured an Utraquist noble named Jan Sadlo to Prague to answer to a charge that he hadn't brought his men to help in the early fighting of the Second Crusade. This was, of course, true for quite a few of the moderate nobles. But no matter, that was Zielewski's point. He promised the poor Sadlo safe conduct and then immediately had him killed, no trial or nothing. Sadlo was a well-liked nobleman, he had advised King Wenceslas and had been crucial in keeping Hussites safe back when the king was still alive. People were not happy with his execution, and it seems to have been a turning point for Zielewski. He became a fanatic and he had eliminated a powerful rival, but his popularity in Prague tanked, as Sadlo was a popular guy. After Nemeki Brod, Zizka returned to Prague along with Utraquist nobles, and the tide began to turn there. New town councillors were installed, and Zielewski loudly protested the conservative turn. He began fomenting riots again, and one evening, he was invited to the town hall, allegedly to help plan their next military campaign. He arrived, and the town councillors asked, 
if they could not reconcile their differences before beginning the next fight against the empire. He protested, said no, and so he was soon seized and, much like Sadlo, quickly executed, along with 12 of his leading followers. A riot followed that put all the previous riots to shame. The execution of one of the key figures that had started the Hussite Wars made the new town of Prague pretty upset. The old town was glad to see him go. But in only a few days, things had quieted down. Lutzow suspects Zyshka helped with a compromise. His presence in the city no doubt helped. It was around this time that some help from abroad materialized. Remember that embassy the Hussites had sent to Grand Duke Vitautis? While he had already indicated he would accept the crown, it's not clear if he would have been so enthusiastic about joining the fight at the time of the crusade, except for the fact that the envoys that the Hussites sent to Poland were nabbed by a Silesian lord on the way. These were envoys with proper papers. This was an international no-no, and Poland and Lithuania reacted with anger. I'm sure Zyska spanking Sigismund back to the Hungarian border didn't hurt his decision-making process either. Anyway, Vitautis decided to send his nephew, Sigismund Koributis, or Koributovich, or Koribut, or Koribut, and we'll just call him Koribut because I don't want to confuse him with King Sigismund and because I like to say Koribut. So he sent Koribut at the head of about 5,000 men. He set out for Krakow, which is in southern Poland, and moved west, entering Moravia. He tried to take a city there, but was unsuccessful. He finally took a smaller town, and then after this victory, he did the double communion thing and said he supported four out of four articles of Prague. He was pretty invested in this whole thing, under the assumption that, after Uncle Vitautis was crowned, Koribut would be named regent and heir apparent. He soon reached out to the Utraquist nobles and made his way to Prague, duly received as regent. Most of the factions accepted Koribut, but without Zyska's acceptance, it wouldn't count for much. Zyska distrusted the Poles and the Lithuanians, but he seems to have accepted him, and eventually even became his friend. In May of 1422, Cory Butte appointed new leadership in Prague, and he was sort of fully acting as regent, although his actual power outside of the center of Prague was probably still pretty limited. Zyska remained the leader of the Taborites, and informally at least he continued to be the leader of the Czech military. By the end of 1422, though, Cory Butte was recalled to Poland, he would constantly be leaving the war, as the Pope would threaten Poland and Lithuania with excommunication over and over again. Eventually, Yogailo sided with Sigismund and met with him in the spring of 1423, offering to send an army to aid in his crusade. Vitautis may have been more reluctant, but he went along with his senior partner. He probably, while promising to help out Sigismund, sent Koribute back into Bohemia to help the Hussites. As it was, the Polish army did not provide much help to Sigismund, and, like so many of the German forces, it dissolved before it really got a chance to invade Bohemia. As fighting was rather limited at this time, internal discord reared its head again. In the spring of 1423, forces of Czenik, who was back on the side of Sigismund, were fighting a rival baron when Zyska decided to intervene. He brought an army of his own into northeast Bohemia and devastated some of Chenik's lands. The two Hussite forces came into contact with each other at the end of April. Zyska was able to occupy a hill and set up his wagon forts. The enemy cavalry were unable to navigate the steep hill and had to dismount and try and march up the hill, in their armor. Lutzow says a contemporary chronicler wrote that Chenik's cavalry had to attack on foot and... Quote, when they were near the summit and attempted to attack the wagons, Zyska received them with fire from his guns and constant attacks by his infantry, unquote. After seeing the enemy exhausted, he ordered his infantry to charge, and they broke up Chenek's forces. The chronicler continues, quote, Lord Chenek and the other lords and their men were defeated by him on the field of battle and lost their wagons and guns. Lord Chenek himself fled from the field with only a small number of followers, unquote. Perhaps because it was becoming a real civil war, Zyska and the other leaders decided to take the fight outside of Bohemia. They launched an attack on Moravia, 
with its large Hussite population, but some Sigismund-allied leadership. A common enemy helped unite the Taborites, Utraquists, and other factions. They marched into Moravia and joined with an Utraquist Moravian nobleman named Borek of Moletinek. He took a few cities, but eventually was soon diverted back to Bohemia. It's not clear exactly what happened, but it seems that Borek, or perhaps one of his relatives, was in league with some citizens from Prague who might have been trying to get the upper hand on Zizka. There was apparently some fight back in Bohemia, which Zizka won because he never lost a battle. Hey, did I mention Zizka never lost a battle? But it may not have been a major battle. Anyway, a new compromise was reached, and the Hussites took a break from fighting each other yet again, perhaps because they learned that Sigismund and the Germans were getting ready to launch another crusade. Zizka, during the lull in the action, took some time to draft some regulations for his army in an attempt to install more discipline. Then he decided to go on the offensive again. Perhaps the regulations were meant to make Bohemia less vulnerable to invasion when he was gone. He again marched to Moravia, but this time he kept going right on into Hungary. According to Lutzow, Zizka's goal was to get Sigismund to give up the Bohemian crown, and he thought invading Hungary might help. As he marched, he found the Hungarians unwilling to fight him. They wanted to lure him further into the country and wanted to wait till his men began to desert. But this didn't happen. He probably reached the Danube, not far from Buda, where Sigismund resided, but he was soon surrounded by a large host of Hungarian cavalry. His supply line stretched. He was smart enough to know that if he went too far, the campaign could quickly turn into a disaster. Outnumbered, he decided to go back to Moravia, and that's when the Hungarians attacked. Zizka marched his men between fortified wagons and was able to keep the horsemen at bay. The march was difficult and took days, but Zizka would set up on a hill, make a wagon fort, and sleep relatively safely each night. He made it back to Moravia. The campaign was kind of a failure, but the Hussites were relatively unscathed. The rest of 1423 was pretty quiet for Zizka. There were more negotiations, but nothing really worth noting. By 1424, though, things were going a little crazy. Civil war had returned to Bohemia. The Utraquists had split from the Taborites again. The Utraquists, including the majority of people in Prague, had wanted to try to negotiate with Sigismund. Zizka wasn't interested in that sort of thing. Zizka apparently was in danger of being captured by the Prague contingent. Can you imagine the undefeatable Zizka taken down by other Hussites? But while he was chased through central Bohemia, he did escape and gathered a large force of Taborites. But this highlights just how bad it was getting amongst the different Hussite groups, which, you know, had varying beliefs and different names they called each other, but they were all called heretics by the Pope. Zizka and his army, once again outnumbered, came across an army of Utraquist Praguers in June of 1424 near the town of Malsov. Can you guess what I'm going to say Zizka did? He found some hill. Is Bohemia really hilly? It's like they follow him around. Anyway, he found some hill, got a strong position, and you guessed it, formed up a wagon fort. As the Praguers tried to climb the hill to attack, he sent in some cavalry which made a quick sally then returned, before he sent the wagons down the hill. Zizka's enemy was completely routed. He was all over Bohemia that summer, helping his allies in various battles throughout the country. But in September, he took a large force and began to march on Prague. Now Prague was becoming an issue, siding against him. But the nobles who followed him and his other advisors didn't really want him attacking and besieging what was by far the most important city in Bohemia. Earlier that year, Coryboot had returned. Despite Poland's stance alongside Sigismund, with 1,500 or so Polish cavalry, and was again residing in Prague, he helped negotiate yet another accord. And, Lutzow writes, quote, It was decided that the Taborites under Zizka, the Praguers with Prince Koribudovich, and the Utraquist nobles should henceforth act in common, and should immediately march to Moravia, which had been almost entirely subdued by the Austrian Archduke Albert. Zizka almost alone did not view the future hopefully, unquote. 
He did not expect this agreement, signed in the village of Leiben, to last any longer than the last few. But he agreed to it, because he was much more concerned with defeating the outside forces than this internal strife. And because fighting someone else usually worked to calm down the internal fighting, at least temporarily. There was real concern that Moravia was going to fall completely under imperial control, so the Hussite armies united to go prevent that from happening. Zhishka was given the role of commander of the United Force, and he marched toward Moravia in September. This was possibly the largest army Zhishka had ever had under his command. The army besieged a fortress on the Moravian border, but Zhishka became ill. He had the plague, according to contemporary chroniclers, and pretty soon, he was dead. Now, one legend has it that he asked his skin to be made into drums to lead his forces into war after his death. More likely is that he was given a proper burial at the city of Hradek Kralove before being moved to Kaslav. In the early part of the 20th century, a skull with damage consistent to Zhishka's eye wounds was discovered there, and many believe this is his. Zhishka's driving goal, once he became the Hussite commander, was freedom for his people and his religion, and he took only one real reward for all his victories, a castle that he called the Chalice, to signify his belief in the communion of both kinds. After that, he called himself Jan Zhishka of the Chalice. Unlike most of his contemporaries, he did not take land after conquering them. He was more concerned with winning the fight than any spoils. That, too, is probably why he was willing to compromise when necessary to protect Bohemia and the Hussites. He was a brilliant general, and he was an incredibly innovative strategist. According to Lutzow, quote, One of the strongest proofs of Zhishka's military talents consists in the manner in which he succeeded in forming an almost invincible army out of the peasants and townsmen, almost all unused to warfare, who flocked to his standards. A flail mounted with iron, a club, or a short spear were the only arms with which Zhishka's men were acquainted. And these rough arms, under Zhishka's skillful guidance and carried away by their religious and national enthusiasm, they used most valiantly. It was for Zhishka, perhaps, an even more difficult task to train his men to use skillfully the handguns and field guns, whose superiority to the firearms of the enemies so greatly contributed to his victories." Unquote. What Zhishka did was neither easy nor obvious, even if it may seem like both today. He was usually outnumbered, but he used his military genius to outmaneuver everyone. On top of his brilliance, he was, for his final years, completely blind, yet he remained undefeated, keeping Bohemia free for Hussite worship. Next episode, we'll see what happens after the Hussites lose their great leader, and we'll conclude the Hussite Wars. Thanks for listening. <laughs>